Welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome to you um, and thank you for going through the trouble to you know make a clubhouse accounts to speak with us here we really appreciate it and uh, before we start let me give the audience like a brief overview um, so they get to know you a little bit and, uh, and then we'll go from there so um, so, so, Tyrius Estef, Estacio. <laughs> okay, so Tyrius Estacio. Right. He's at the Cellular Stress Response and Aging um, uh, Institute in Cologne, uh, Germany, and um, he works in um, Dr. Hopper's lab. He did his education also at the University of Cologne. Um, in um, and he did various um, uh, he had various positions at uh, including being a guest um, researcher at the Urebro University in Sweden and he was at uh, oh you were at Apple a technical specialist <laughs> and um, yeah, and before the position he's holding now, he was also a master student in Dr. Hopper's lab. Um, so, um, yeah, and he um, recently published with Dr. Hopper this really interesting and, and amazing um, paper that he will present here today. So, welcome. And before we start, we usually ask um, our speakers the question how you chose this career path basically or this you know way of living to be a scientist um was it something you always wanted to do or did this you know uh passion for science started later on in your life thank you first of all thank you very much for having me I am, it's my pleasure to be here and share some of our data and in terms of career path I wouldn't say that I grew up as a young boy really wanting to become a scientist. So this became part of my journey much later on. As part of an uh, immigrant family in Germany, I was the first one to actually go to university at all in the whole family tree uh, of mine. So it wasn't really a, an endeavor from the beginning to become a scientist and do research, but in the beginning it was actually to become educated in something that interests me. And that, of course, was biology in my bachelor degree. And after that, I realized I'm much more interested in molecular biology, biochemistry and genetics compared to other domains of biology like ecology or uh, more, more macro biology, let's say. So I was more interested into the smaller parts of biology and how to study them. And my journey basically started with wanting to become a nutritional scientist to study how metabolism works. And after my stay in Potsdam to in the German Institute for Human Nutrition, I realized I would rather like to focus my energy somewhere else. And I was very happy to find in Cologne, Torsten's Hopper lab to study on a genetic and biochemical level, the in interaction of, of genes, how they impact age associated diseases and cellular uh, health in the end. Yeah, so it wasn't planned from the beginning, but um, I slipped into my master thesis into this group and I really liked it. So I continued my PhD thesis and now we have something to share, which was published last year in December. Yeah, I'm so glad that you uh, discovered, um, you know, the field because, uh, yeah, you're um, doing amazing work and you published this. So, um, uh, this is wonderful and also I know it's not easy coming from uh, immigrant family to make it through the you know being I don't know how it was in your school but being classified as being allowed to go to gymnasium and then yeah, yeah. I barely made it to be honest I barely <laughs> made it to gymnasium back then but since then many things changed I, I had uh, I was very lucky yeah I mean the same was for me, my teacher in fourth grade, she said, um, because we, you know, not a native 
speaker back then. You know, I started in the middle of elementary and my mom wasn't speaking German well. She said, I don't know if she will make it in gymnasium. And my mom said, right. if you don't write so in I that ask, letter, uh, that he your... makes it. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first language, your mother tongue? If you want to say it like that. Uh, Portuguese, yeah. Portuguese, from second yeah. grade, I went to, to Germany, to German school, uh, in, in Germany, to schools cool. in second grade. So the teacher said, yeah, you know how they are. Yeah. Okay, it was even more difficult for you then. So I learned Greek as my first language and I was put um, to the kindergarten without a single word of German. And that was fun. <laughs> yeah, right. There. But it worked very fast at that age. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I learned it so fast. I think it was mostly those stories, um, Tikagagi and all of this stuff. We had a lot of those and listening to those stories kind of helped me. I don't know mm -hmm. why, but apparently I was reading what they're saying all day and then... <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I know I know how hard it was. So <laughs> congratulations, and now you're here. Um, and um, yeah, and so you've already alluded how you came, how you were also interested in this specific field. Um, how was it to work in the on this project? You know, was it, were was ever, sometimes there are stories like everyone was about to give up, or it worked exceptionally well not like other projects uh, was there like some struggle or something that like stick out, sticks out to you that you want to give advice to people <laughs> to other phd students or so? oh yeah. <laughs> yeah i don't know whether i'm in a, in a position to give people advice about their phds because i know just from my friends phds can be very different depending on the on the project leader and also on the institutes and funding and all of, of that stuff. But to go a little bit more into your question about how this paper came along now in the end is basically starting 10 years back where the initial screening was done. I'm gonna to present to you a forward genetic screening that was done to find those genetic factors that I'm gonna talk about today. And this was done nine and a half years ago by a PhD student, uh, which was not there anymore when I came to the lab. So this project is, if anything, is maybe a story about how overall four uh, scientists all across nine years are stitching together something that has to be, of course, reproduced from one person to the other because their different hands sometimes, as you know, also have different outcomes and experiments. But in the end, we were able to to put all of this together in a 10 years time frame and then publish it by the end of last year. Uh, and in terms of giving up or having very tough times, uh, this was for us uh, actually during the revision. So we had several, so we tried in CNS, of course we had, uh, this is another way of revision there. And then we also tried it in nature cell biology and of course, the revision was not easy per se, and it took us 11 months to, to pull it off. And the revision was very fair. So the reviewers were uh, quite rational about what they're asking. And uh, we also thought of these experiments but by, by nature were not easy to be done. But because the pressure was there, uh, we achieved to do that. And also, um, these were the experiments we were not so able to do before because we didn't want to invest too much time because they're too high risk, you know, but then after the reviewers asked us, we had to do them. So we had to optimize, we had to find the technical ways of pulling them off while still being technically very correct and having robust results. So giving up was not an option there anymore because we were at the last stage of publishing and we really were able, and actually we are quite uh, lucky uh, that we were able to to do that in in this time frame too. So, it's a success story after really having some some sleepless nights and trying to optimize the experiments to actually get the technicalities right to to be able to to study the last the last steps to 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 uh, get this publication out. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's um, that's really great um, to hear that 
you know, in the end, everything worked out. And um, I think it's really important for people to hear these stories because you you read this wonderful papers and go to conferences and hear this, you know, amazing science stories. And then you think, why doesn't it work for me? <laughs> but then you realize, you know, um, that this was, you know, hard for most people. And, um, you know, we're all are struggling most of the time. And then all of a sudden something works too. <laughs> so, um, yeah, thank you for sharing that story. And um, so everyone, the, the slides are pinned on top of the room. And um, yeah, the stage is yours. Thank you. All right. Uh, so thank you for joining today's talk about a paper, as mentioned before, published just last year in December, about the role of ER-associated RNA silencing, or, or how we termed it ERAS, and how it's involved in the quality control of the endoplasmic reticulum, uh, which in short is ER. So I'm not sure how the audience, uh, how broad the audience is in terms of ER quality control. So I will have a little bit of an introduction slide, which goes to, let's say, high school biology, uh, where we'd, uh, if you want to go to slide two of the, of the slides I shared, you're going to see on the left side the, the molecular dogma, dogma basically, or the, the dogma of molecular biology, where life works or cells work in, in the way that they encode genetic information in the DNA that is transcribed to a messenger molecule, which is usually RNA or mRNA. And this molecule is then able to translate this information into a molecular tool, or how biologists like to call it, protein that uh, has certain enzymatic functions or structural functions within the cell and is able to perform biological output and maintain and propagate cellular life. So one third of all proteins within uh, eukaryotic cells can be translated at the endoplasmic reticulum. And so you see the downwards uh, arrow from RNA goes to a structure within the cell that is called the rough ER. And it's called rough because there are ribosomes on top of these ER mem membrane sheets. And those ribosomes are the cellular machinery. So those little dots, there are the cellular machinery to translate proteins in the, into the ER. And surprisingly enough, uh, viruses do a very same thing when they hijack our cells to propagate themselves. So many viruses are ER obligate viruses. So they need the ER structure to replicate themselves and also infect further tissues and uh, other cells. So it's not just a mechanism that our cells use, but viruses also hijack the same mechanism to uh, propagate themselves. Now on the right side, you can see one molecular mechanism within the ER that is able to recognize whether a protein structure is natively folded or misfolded. So the natively folded um, structure, as you can see um, on the top right, is just trafficked normally within the cell and uh, does its normal function. But when a protein is either misfolded because of uh, a genetic mutation or of environmental stress within the ER, then a machinery called ER-associated protein degradation, or in short, ERAT, is recognizing that protein, translocating it back into the cytosol of the cell, and then degrading this and recycles basically those amino acids to be used again. So the clearance of protein species um, is then subdivided uh, with the misfolding regions of a protein. For example, if the membrane um, part of the protein is misfolding, or the luminal or the cytosolic part is misfold of the protein, there's, there's a different machinery for that. And then the substrates that are degraded are either called based on the membrane, luminal, or cytosolic, and misfolding region, ERAT-M, ERAT-L, or ERAT-C substrates. So this process, this biological process, is highly involved in several diseases, including uh, cancer um, and also in viral defense uh, mechanisms of cells or viral pathogenicity and is also implicated in uh, new studies that if this process is not working properly, longevity uh, is and health span and lifespan are impacted too. And we see this in our lab, by the way, too. Mutants in this machinery, they live 
drastically shorter. And this pathway is not just uh, part of the human um, cells, but it is fundamentally conserved from yeast to worms to humans and plants. And as you will see later in the talk, I'm working on worms in the model organisms of C. elegans, where we found a novel mechanism regulating this endoplasmic reticulum homeostasis and found that it's actually conserved also in mouse and mice and humans. And um, this machine or this complex or machinery within the cell is very well shown uh, to have a causative effect on diseases like human retinitis pigmentosa, where rhodopsin as a protein is not rightly trafficked to its uh, traffic to its proper place in the cell, or also within cystic fibrosis, where um, the transmembrane protein that is impacted by this disease is not properly folding and being degraded. So overall, the statement of this introductory slide, introduction, introductory slide is that the ER and its protein folding capacity is essential for cells and is a very important mechanism to be studied to prevent or also treat diseases, especially also in humans. Uh, so if you go to the next slide, which is slide three, I want to shortly tell you how we study this in a model organism of Seligans. So on the bottom right, you see those worms and fluorescent microscopy pictures. And to cut a long story short, we express in those worms two transgenes. On the top right, on the top left, sorry, I, I, there's a protein called CPL1 wild type, which is coupled to a YFP fluorescing molecule. And on the right side, we have a mutant form of the very same protein, which is misfolding constantly in the cell and is then also degraded by the ERAT machinery immediately. So under normal conditions, as you can see on, the, on those recent pictures, where we don't mess with any uh, machinery within the cell, the substrate does not accumulate, the CP1 star YFP substrate, that is. But once we start um, knocking down factors of the ERAT machinery that I introduced earlier, we start to see that this substrate is now accumulating in those worms, and we can measure that by fluorescence microscopy or by other means of measuring uh, the YFP fluorescence. Right. So we use that reporter strain, which is indicating to us when the cellular machinery for recycling is not working properly anymore to perform a forward genetic screen. If you go to slide four, you will appreciate that we, this strain is basically an indicator when you mutate genes that are important for the recycling machinery, the protein recycling machinery, that you will find either already known factors for the um, recycling of proteins, or you can also find novel factors for the recycling in the cell, which are not yet known to be involved into this process and therefore have novelty and also potential for uh, being able to better understand diseases or uh, genetic predispositions. So on the top, you can see again worms that we identified within the screen for example, the HH17, this is slide four now, the uh, middle part, uh, the HH17 strain is a completely novel mutation we found, which was not characterized before in the ERAT machinery that leads to a YFP positive, uh, to YFP positive uh, worm strain. And this is also true for a known ERAT fun uh, loss of function, which is the NDF59. And also if you knock down uh, cell 11 through RNAi, you can again see a stabilization of the substrate. What you can see on the bottom uh, are basically completely new alleles in genes that were not yet characterized to be involved in the recycling of proteins within cells. And these factors, so RD1, DRH1, and RRF1, which you can see on the bottom left, are all found in the same cellular machinery that is known to be important for RNA interference or RNA silencing. So this is a mechanism, a biological mechanism that was so important to be found that the persons who found it got the Nobel Prize in uh, 2000 something, I forgot actually the year, but the first persons to, uh, or the first person who found this uh, cellular machinery stumbled upon a very essential mechanism with themselves to basically degrade viral RNA that is usually invading 
uh, a cell and is then uh, degraded by this RNA interference pathway. So the factors we found to be regulating this transgene were within this pathway. And of course, we asked ourselves how those factors are doing um, what we are observing, that the protein of uh, the transgene is degraded. So on slide five, you will see two different chases that we did within cells and within the worms. So one time we chase the protein levels and the other time we chase the mRNA levels of the, of the transgene. And as you can appreciate on the left side with the protein chases, only the known ERAT mutant, so the cell 11, induces a stabilization of the substrate, while the argonaut RD1, which is part of the RNA silencing machinery, is not impacting or impinging upon the protein degradation of the substrate, indicating that the new newly found mechanism that we found is not regulating the protein stability of the substrate. Now, if you look on the RNA level, when we do mRNA chases, you can appreciate that the argonaut mutant, the RD1, is leading to a drastic stabilization of the transcript of the transgene. So you can see in blue with where the first arrow is that we see a stabilization of the uh, transcript over 10 hours. And this is only true for the CPL1 star construct and not for the correctly folding uh, protein in the terms of the CPL1 Y-type transcript. So the CPL1 Y-type transcript is encoding for a protein that is natively folding and we do not observe a degradation of its transcript on the mRNA level, while we do observe it for the CP1 star, the mutant mRNA, or the mutant transgene, let's say. And of course, we wanted to find out, after we found that the uh, RNA silencing pathway is actually degrading also the mRNA in this context, we wanted to find out why it's only doing it for the mutated version and it's not doing it for the wild-type-like version. So we, we performed RNA-seq analysis uh, on slide six on the top left, you can see that we wanted to understand what is within the CP1 star strain that is inducing the degradation of this mutant transcript, which is not found in terms of transcription landscape in the CP1 Y type or in general Y type worms. So, this is the top left panel of the RNA seq data. And when we performed Go term analysis, we were able to identify that the CP1 star expression actually causes the stress and the induction of unfolded protein response. So, it's uh, on the top right where you can see that those Go terms pop up, indicating that maybe the reason why the CP1 star transcript is degraded is because its expression and the constant misfolding of the protein it's encoding is increasing ER stress and also the unfolded protein response of the ER, which is one of the major stress response pathway within eukaryotic cells as well. So this is a highly, the UPR ER that is, so the unfolded protein response. And now this is a correlational observation. We see that C-star expression is causing ER stress and we see that its transcript is degraded. And we wanted to make a causative connection there. So if you look on the bottom half of uh, slide six, you can see on the bottom left part that the difference between the CP1 wild type and the CP1 star transcript in its stability over 10 hours is completely mediated by the RD1 protein. So the factor that we focused on after finding that RNA interference is involved into, in this destabilization uh, of the transcript. So the effect between those two transcripts is completely um, mediated through this argonaut protein. And now the striking part is, although the CP1 wild-type transcript is usually not degraded, so this is the middle figure of the bottom part, you can induce its degradation by inducing ER stress. So we cross the cell 11, so the ERAT mutant, into the CP1 wild-type expressing strain, and you can now appreciate between the gray and the black line that over 30 hours we see a destabilization of the wild-type transcript. So we made now a usually not degraded target to a degraded target by the um, argonaut just by inducing ER stress, this time in, in the terms of cell 11 crossing into the mutant. 
And we know this because on the bottom right, you can see that in mutants of cell 11 NDF59 allele, you can appreciate that both mutants show increased ER stress. So we measure here on the y-axis the HSP4 mRNA expression, which is a, the best indicator, one of the most used indicators to show ER stress induction. So although the uh, cell 11 single mutant and cell 11 RD1 double mutant both show ER stress, only the cell 11 single mutant shows a highly destabilized mRNA transcript, which is the black line in the middle again, and once the Argonaut is missing, there's no uh, the destabilization anymore. So overall, the statement is that we found a new pathway in regulating mRNA transcript levels, which is dependent on ER homeostasis. So this was, at this point, uh, the finding we had in this story. And we, of course, asked ourselves whether this is just an effect on the transgene we study in the worm, or whether this is an effect with many also endogenous targets. So endogenous mRNAs in the worms expressed under normal uh, levels and whether these are also impacted by the same machinery. And if you go to slide seven, uh, you can see another RNA-seq experiment where we tested uh, RD1 mutants versus wild-type mutants in the CP1 star-expressing background. And sure enough, we were able to found many, many mRNAs that were upregulated when the Argonaut was missing, indicating that those are usually degraded by the Argonaut. And on the top right, you see again a go-term analysis to see what those upregulated targets actually were those localized to. And strikingly, we found that over three-quarter of them are localizing to the endomembrane and secretory system. So a huge proportion of those mRNAs that are upregulated are degraded by this argonaut protein that are usually, so this mRNAs are usually targeted to the endoplasmic reticulum. And when we did again mRNA chases, which is a much better um, assay to show mRNA stability than just RNA-seq data on the top, you can see on the bottom that we randomly picked three uh, RNAs within those upregulated um, transcript in the seq data, and you can appreciate again that those are RD1 dependently degraded. And a randomly picked control, so PASS7, which is not upregulated in the seq data, is not regulated RD1 dependent. So at this point, we started talking about a complementary pathway to ERAT, which is usually degrading proteins, but we have found what we believe to be an RNA degrading pathway at the ER. So we termed this pathway ER-associated RNA silencing, or in short, ERAS. And the next important question we wanted to investigate is whether that ERAS functionality that we investigated in the worm so far is also conserved in the mammalian system. So we used mouse embryonic fibroblasts when you go to slide A, and again performed similar experiments to identify targets that are impacted by argonaut biology, especially under ER stress conditions, which we identified before were the relevant, uh, also the ER stress was a re relevant condition that induced this argonaut effect on RNA stability. So we used the functional ortholog of RD1 in mammals, which is ARGO2, and treated those cells with two ER stress-inducing agents, so tunicamycin and topsigargan, and identified 187 targets that are ARGO2-dependently degraded when those ER stresses are there. And what we found there, again in mRNA, mRNA chases, which you see on the bottom half of the page, that the first three mRNAs, uh, so the first three graphs, which we again picked out of the RNA-seq data to, uh, to, uh, val to validate the argonaut-dependent degradation, we indeed see in um, mRNA chases that those mRNAs are ARGO2-dependently degraded. And similar to the experiments before, we also used a cytosolic mRNA, which is not regulated in the RNA-seq data, and there we see no effect. So this is the bottom right graph um, where we have the RPL19 mRNA, which is not degraded by the argonaut. And then we went a step further in the mammalian system because the antibodies for the argonaut there are quite good. 
and we performed biochemical assays to identify that those mRNAs that we showed before are degraded by the argonaut are also inter physically interacting with the argo 2 protein. So we performed an immunoprecipitation assay, which you can see on the uh, bottom left part of, of, of um, not Figelman, but uh, slide nine, sorry. So there is this Western blot where you can see in, an, in the immunoprecipitation fraction, we were able to highly enrich the argo 2 protein. And we, uh, the, so the assay is called CLIP, so cross-linking immunoprecipitation assay, where we were able to, to cross-link mRNAs, which are closely, physically closely to the argonaut, and then perform real-time qPCR to identify whether we could enrich the mRNAs that are actually degraded by the argonaut. And fair enough, we could clearly see for the three identified mRNAs, uh, so C1RL, NOF, and Merck, that these are highly enriched in the IP fraction, while the negative control, which we used earlier, RPL19, is, RPL19 is not. And most importantly, on the physiological level, when we treat those cells with tunicamycin, so the bottom right part of the slide, you can see that the cell survival of the argo 2 mutant cell line is very low. So they are very, very, very susceptible to tunicamycin as an ER stress-inducing agent, while the Y-type cell line is much more resistant to tunicamycin and increasing concentrations. So this is the gray, the gray line there. And the IC50 uh, for tunicamycin is therefore much, much lower for the argo 2 mutants. So you need much less tunicamycin to really uh, stress those cells into not surviving anymore. Right, to not make this too long, uh, I have a, a very last part where I want to show the last figure of our paper, which is slide 10, where we investigated the newly found mechanism called ERAS with the old and very well-known pathway, ERAT, so RNA degradation and protein degradation, and how these two pathways cooperate to maintain ER homeostasis. And on the left, top left side, of the slide, you see the YFP fluorescence of the reporter strain I showed you earlier, where argonauts are missing, like RD, the RD1 protein is missing. You see already an increase in the YFP fluorescence. When you knock down the cell 11, so the ERAT pathway, you again see also a stabilization. And when you knock down both simultaneously, you have an additive effect on the protein accumulation of the substrate. So indicating that these two pathways are not working in a, are not in the same pathway, so they're not doing the same thing on the cell, but they're rather are working together, one on the protein side, one on the mRNA side, to degrade the substrate. And on the bottom left part, you see the, the functional implication of that. So the uh, promoter HSV4 GFP uh, reporter strain is basically a GFP coupled to the promoter region of HSP4. So HSP4 is the gene, as I told you before, that is highly expressed under ER stress conditions. So whenever we see a lot of GFP in the cell, we know that this strain experiences ER stress, then the, which activates the promoter of HSP4. And you can appreciate that RD1 single knockdown is not inducing GFP expression. While the, so the ERAS pathway singular knockdown is not inducing the ER stress. The ERAT knockdown, this is a well-known um, like well-known uh, observation. So the cell 11 knockdown induces ER stress. But now if we knock out both pathways simultaneously, you see a huge increase in ER stress. So this is a double knockdown condition on the right side of the blood, indicating that one pathway can somewhat deal with the loss of function of the other, but when both pathways are missing, the cells experience a lot of ER stress. And chronic ER stress has been tightly associated to intestinal barrier uh, integrity problems and also inflammatory bowel disease in mice and humans. And we asked ourselves when we adapt an assay, which is usually used in Drosophila, which is called, uh, which is called the Smurf assay, uh, based on the comics, where worms uh, turn out to be blue when we feed them with um, food which has a food dye, a blue food dye in it. And usually when the worms eat this bacteria, what they usually eat um, mixed with blue food dye, you only see the intestine stained 
in a blue color. But once the worms have not a functional gut barrier, this blue color is leaking into the body cavity of the worms. So they, they become blue and are called in a funny way, uh, this is the Smurf phenotype and which represents a leaky gut. And there's also the non-Smurf phenotype worms, which is with only blue color with, within their intestine, but not in the body cavity. And again, if you check the double mutants, so ERAS and ERAT mutants together, you can appreciate that we have a highly increased body cavity leakage of this blue food dye, indicating that when both pathways are missing, we have impaired ER homeostasis as shown on the bottom left. And this again can lead to a functional or a dysfunction within the gut. So the, the, the colors leaked into the body cavity. And with that, I also want to end in a model we proposed where ERAS, and this is the slide 11, sorry, where ERAS is contributing, contributing to ER quality control and also viral defense, but this data I didn't show here, um, but we can discuss this. I would be happy to discuss this with, with you. So ERAS contributes to ER quality control by performing post-transcriptional silencing, which works in parallel to the post-translational degradation, which is known um, by which is known that ERAT is performing all the time. So ERAS and ERAT work in parallel in maintaining ER homeostasis, uh, work in parallel in degrading um, gene products that are misfolded or causing ER stress, and thereby both contribute to ER homeostasis. So the fun part now, which we are going to write a review about very soon, uh, is how ERAS is integrating or the RNA interference pathway, which those factors are usually known to be doing, how these factors are mediating the viral um, defense, with, because usually they are known to degrade the viral RNAs, but we found now they also degrade endogenous RNAs without any viral infection background. And so we're gonna do a literature review to to ask the question and see what is already published out there in terms of how this pathway could be regulated in defending from outside RNAs versus self-RNAs. And with that, with this, I would like to end. If you go to slide 12 and thank my work group, uh, especially towards Nottel for having me in his lab, but also uh, a shout out to Franziska Ottens and Lena-Sophie Schütter. I told you in the beginning we were uh, many people working on this project, and these are the both co uh, first co-authors of this paper together with me. So, as I mentioned before, this paper is, if something, a story about cooperation and working together to, to, to find something interesting in biology. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for presenting this really, um, really um, amazing work. Um, and to guide us through how, um, yeah, how you did the work and and um, why you did the different steps and um, the methods you used for it. Um, it's really interesting to see um, to see that interplay and that quality control. Um, and um, I wanted to ask if. Um, if you thought of um, stressing out those different models or or did you do that or are you planning on doing that now um, i don't know if in c elegance if if you stress out um, the if the expression changes or if this quality control changes basically the performance even in the in the healthy or you know wild type ones um is there something like do you have some data on that maybe mm -hmm. so let's see we have data for lifespan analyses that clearly show that mutants of either pathway are short-lived sorry so eras mutants that we have here are short-lived and ERAT mutants are short-lived too. So even under the stress conditions of normal life of the worms, we see that it already impacts longevity if those pathways are missing. So just the stress of normal, normal in quotes, life is enough 
for these pathways to be detrimental if they're not there anymore. And in terms of stress resistance, what we have seen, um, yeah, sorry, I just had the chat. In, in terms of stress resistance, we have seen in cell lines that the cells that are lacking this argonaut mechanism are much more resistant to ER stress, already implicating that they are involved into mitigating ER stress once it's there. And overall, the UPR ER, so the unfolded protein response at the ER has been shown to be, or is one of the major pathways how cells react to uh, ER stress. And there are many studies now popping up showing that microRNAs are upregulated once there is ER stress in worms and also in, in, in mammals. And there was one, one study published by uh, David Ron, who is uh, one of the, the stars in the field, let's say, uh, who showed that there is a specific microRNA which is upregulated upon ER stress, which regulates rhodopsin levels in the developing retina um, of mice. So this would be one physiological uh, example of what we think ERAS is doing. Yeah, that, thank you for the answer, because that would have been the next question, if you know about other cell types and if you think that basically um, a bad performance um, of the system could be, you know, underlying different neurodegenerative mm. disorders, um, you know, from Alzheimer's to ALS even. Yes. You're from the neuroscience field, right? Yes. Uh, this is correct in your bio? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're actually also under, so we're investigating this specifically. So RNA transport across axons and also mRNA stability seems to be quite important for neuronal uh, cellular health. So we are investigating whether with the tools we have in Celegans, whether we can um, see the importance of this pathway in, in neuronal health and whether any a cognitive disorder which is uh, mimicked in, in worms and model substrates um, or in reporter strains, we can actually see whether EROS has an impact on this. So maybe in a few years I have an answer to this. Yeah, are you planning using organoids? Um, maybe to... Yeah, to... not yet, not yet. We are also quite interested in the physiological implications in viral defense so we are also trying to find ways to see whether we can increase the ability of cells to fight off viruses when we pre-treat them with the astras and this is something that has been shown in the field repeatedly and nobody really knows how it works so this works in mice, this works in worms, this works in any cell culture experiment I, I have seen for most viruses. When you pre-treat those animals and cells with ER stress, they become extremely resistant to viruses, especially to those viruses that are using the ER to propagate. And this is also true for SARS-CoV-2. There was a group in Gießen in Germany who showed that if you pre-treat even human-derived lung cells with ER stress, they are very resistant to SARS-CoV-2. And based on what we identified here, it could be mediated through this argonaut-dependent biology. But this is, uh, this is just a guess, and that's why we're doing the literature review, and we're also cooperating or finding ways to cooperate with people working with viruses. Yeah, that is really interesting. The 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 preventive type of um, yeah, the, the preventive approach. Would there be a way to assess? Is there also work being done to assess or diagnose in people if their system, basically in their body, works well, like? Is there, mm -hmm. you know, such diagnosis tool being in the works or maybe in the thought process of being worked out? Mm -hmm. 
Not that I'm aware of. There, there are. There is a review showing a prominent in in um, in GWAS studies. Uh, we were like not we, but in this review, it was shown that the ARGO2 mutations. So there are many SNPs in ARGO2 that lead to many human um, detrimental phenotypes, also in the generation of um, blood cells, but. I'm not aware, actually, I have to, to look again into the paper, whether also against viral infections, but it is known that mutations in the ARGO2 gene lead to severe phenotypes, also in humans. But there's no diagnostic tool apart from, from genotyping those SNPs that I'm aware of to pre-assess, let's say, susceptibility to viral infections. Yeah, thank you. Um, I wanted to uh, hand over the microphone to the other people. Um, here on stage. Um, if you still have a few minutes, we have Joyce, Akil, and Kirko that joined the stage. Welcome. Thank you. Yes, hello. It's very interesting. Um, thank you for the presentation. And um, I was also thinking about the role of uh, this kind of um, system and ER stress in fighting intracellular bacteria. And I wondered if you'd looked into that. I mean, I know that they're finding more and more things about mitochondria, you know, playing a role in the immune system as well. And it seems like the body has to have so many mechanisms to protect against microbes. Anyway, thank you. Thank you very much, Joyce. I'm afraid I do not have a satisfactory answer to this because I asked myself that question months back, but I really struggled to find a mechanism how, uh, how bacterial RNA could be released into the cytosol. So in endosomes and being degraded there by the lytic capacities of the lysosome, etc., I, I could imagine it, but I don't see a mechanism how those mRNAs escape to the, to the cytosol. But I'm no expert whatsoever on bacteria, so I, I'm sorry I cannot answer it satisfactorily. Okay. Well, I'll put in the chat. I, I did. I was interested in this topic. So while you were talking, I Googled it and they were talking about how intracellular microbes could live in the phagosomes and, and how it could have an impact, an interaction with the ER and the unfolded protein response. So I'll put that in the chat. Okay. Interesting. Thank you. Um, yeah, Akil, did, did you want to ask a question? Yeah, I would like to ask a question, but I will, I'll be right back in like two minutes. Uh, Kirko, you can go ahead with your question if you have one. Kiko, are you here? Can you hear us? Do you have a question? Hello? Yeah, we can hear you. Hi. Oh, yeah. Uh, how's it going? Uh, so I kind of came in late in the conversation, so I, I feel like I missed a lot, but I do kind of have a random question that I hope isn't too far-fetched. So um, uh, at least from like what I kind of caught, it kind of seems like um, like there's something stressing like an organism, which is causing like the protein misfolding. Uh, if I'm correct on that, uh, when I, is that correct? Before I ask this question? Yes, yes, of okay. I can. So, um, my question is like, do you think that there could be a mechanism between like with uh, like some sort of stress, whether it be oxidative or whatever, uh, that can lead to the creation of like prions? Because like, um, I kind of understand like, you know what I'm saying? Like how prions and stuff like mad cow got into humans, people eating humans, so on and so forth, cows eat cows, and all of a sudden they got these proteins that turn proteins into copies of themselves, which turns to be detrimental to the organism. So it's kind of curious on if like stress itself or some form of stress could lead to, you know what I'm saying, the protein misfolding that leads to prions. Okay, thank you very much for the question. Uh, so far I've been mainly working on RNA of the cells, but the prion problem, I can only recite something that I learned reading some reviews and also the, the books about it, that there are definitely stressors that induce 
the infectionist quote-unquote of prions of the state of prions right the, the dogma as far as i'm aware is that prions once they start having the misfolding for example these these very stable beta sheets so they go from their native fold into a um, also very stable fold but which is able to polymerize with the same proteins that were so the, the same proteins that can also have this very stable beta sheet. So they just clump together. And this is usually induced by an initial stressor. So the, 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 the native fold is changed into the prion-like uh, fold. But I'm not sure whether this is really what you were asking for. Oh, well, uh, I guess kind of, um, I was just kind of curious on, we kind of answered it in, in a way. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's close enough. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, hi. Do you have, uh, do you still have time for another question? Yeah, absolutely. Shoot away. All right. So as someone who is not an expert, uh, you know, in this field, I was genuinely like fascinated by your presentation, you know, like how the uh, cooperation between ERAS and ERAD in maintaining uh, uh, the ER homeostasis. So I was especially intrigued by the, uh, you know, potential implications of uh, ER stress on, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, intestinal barrier integrity and IBDs. My brother like suffers from uh, ulcerative colitis, which is a form of uh, or type of IBD. And I personally suffer from GERD. Uh, and I'm curious if there might be like connection. So my question is like, based on your findings, could you envision like a scenario where uh, manipulating the balance between ERAS and ERAD might lead to, you know, innovative uh, therapeutic approaches for conditions like IBDs and GERD? Mm -hmm. I, so first of all, I'm sorry for, for those conditions uh, that, that you're experiencing. And I also have to be honest to say that I do not have any insight whatsoever to make claims about human diseases at, at this stage, what, what we have found. So I, I'm really sorry, I, I can't even imagine how this basic cellular mechanism could be modulated by some kind of drug or change in diet or microbiome, which, so this is very much at the basic research. And um, it's really, yeah, I'm sorry, but it's not progressed that far that we were able to make any connection whatsoever with lifestyle, with lifestyle choices. Right. I mean, I'm not an expert in this field, so I'm not even sure if uh, if this question was relevant to your uh, subject of expertise. But thank you so much for your time and uh, you know uh, listening you. to my question. Thanks. Yeah. Let me um, check the chat if there are. Um, Leanne is asking if the stress. Um, Oh, but it's, it's, yeah, we can, I can please reach out to me later and then we can address those questions that are a little bit uh, not related to, to this talk. Um, uh, but thank you for, for asking. And um, <clears throat> yeah, I am. Um, thank you for all of those questions so far. Um, I wanted to ask the next steps that you're doing. Um, are you thinking of um, going into, I know it would be maybe um, fairly um, hard, but is there like a good mouse model basically that you think would be most interesting to uh, check for, um, for this um, mechanism? Um, you know, it's basically going back to Akhil's a question where you would um, analyze for this different um, gastrointestinal uh, symptoms to check, you know, how um, the system is maybe uh, at fault um, and drives basically this disorders or would that something another lab would collaborate with you on? Yeah, interesting point. Uh, future directions. So since this is such a basic molecular mechanism, so we can just look at ERAD, for example, so the well-known one, it can be studied in so many different ways in 
different tissues and organisms and what the implications are. So what we are currently thinking is the viral defense part, since the data we have seen so far is very convincing that could, this could be very important to study in the future to decrease the, the burden of viral infections, since we have very little tools so far to treat them. Uh, so this is the main focus we are currently um, looking into. But of course, I mean, since the function of ago 2 in this way was not yet considered, I'm sure there are going to be groups worldwide who can reinterpret their already gathered data maybe, and then make statements about that or go further into this direction. So uh, we are just very happy to be, that we were able to contribute to the field in the way of, of this paper. And then we are happy to see what people will do with this information and uh, bring science forward. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a, it's a great, really great uh, contribution. And the viral, I mean, the, the most probably asked question you will probably get is regarding long COVID and so on. Are you planning on maybe um, going specifically into COVID-related um, research since, you know, viral, uh, you mentioned yes. viral infection. Mm -hmm. So no plan so far in our group, uh, as far as I know and to go into long COVID. So we, of course, the, the, the power we have as one single group to, to investigate is limited. And uh, so far we are not using any human uh, patient data or anything in this direction in terms of long COVID. If there's a Seligans model mimicking long COVID, text me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I will <laughs> right away. <laughs> Well, I guess people are working on it. I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's the elegance. I'm not. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see in the future. Definitely. But I think. Do you think there should be anything special? I, I think if you look into these viral interactions, you could probably, um, you know, assume that this will be happening for a lot of viruses and like different levels of severity, I guess. I don't know, maybe I'm oversimplifying it today, but. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I will be able to say much more after writing the review about it. We are currently in the literature uh, research. It's gonna take a while and then we will have more more input on this on this topic. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it will be uh, really, review. Um, I know it's a lot of work, but it's also, you know, very helpful for the field to put it into a bigger picture context for us exactly. and probably for you. I think those are really important and overseen many times um, because I think one of the big challenges we have now and probably more and more in the future is to put all the data we collect into like a bigger picture context mm -hmm. and and then make sense of it. So yeah, thank you for working on that too. <laughs> thank you very much. And yeah, we we've talked for an hour. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it that you you know on such short notice you give this amazing talk. So um and uh, yeah, I, we are looking forward to following your work and uh, learn more from you in the future hopefully and um yeah good luck with everything and you know hug. it was a pleasure thank you <laughs> wonderful and thanks everyone for coming asking questions adding comments reach out to me if you have additional comments or questions um and um yeah i hope to hear you all back soon our uh, next talk will be um, next week uh, with Dr. Nadasti and um, it's it's an interesting neuroscience talk that time. Um, he uh, analyzed what the mechanisms are why uh, children and adults experience time very differently and what the underlying mechanisms are. I think it will be interesting too. So happy weekend everyone. Uh, 
especially to you, uh, Sotirius. And um, yeah, I hope to hear you all back soon. I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye. Bye.